0: This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics,
1: trends,
0: discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to The Trumpet's Weekly Review of all the important news. I'm Joel Hilliker, and with me is our panel here in the studio. We have Jeremiah Jacques. Hi there. And Andrew Miller. Hello. From our office in Britain, we have Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Brent Noctegall. Good to be with you. It's great to have you back with us. A big, big week in prophetically significant events. We have a lot to get to today. We'll start with the election in Italy that will bring to power a political party with roots in Italian fascism. For this story, we'll go to Richard Palmer.
2: Yes, Italy held their long-anticipated election on Sunday. As expected, the largest political party emerging from that election was led was the Brothers of Italy party led by Giorgio Meloni. this party that we've talked about quite a bit on this show. And uh, as you just said, there has its links going all the way back to Benito Mussolini, it's a party that is, you know, via a couple of name changes, a direct descendant of the party that was set up um, by Mussolini's henchmen after World War II to keep Mussolini's policies alive in Italy. So they won the largest, um, the largest, or they got more votes than any other party. Their right-wing coalition as well will also have a majority in both houses of parliament so prior to the election they agreed a coalition prior to this election they agreed that whichever party in this coalition was biggest would provide the prime minister so everything is in place now for giorgio maloney to take that position the election was sunday it still takes a while for all of the details to be figured out it's amazing to me how long it takes this to happen with italian politics so uh, maloney's party won 26 percent of the vote the coalition won 44% of the vote. They're still working out how many seats in the different houses of parliament that will get them. But it seems likely a lot of the estimates put it at about 58% of the seats in the lower house, 56% of the seats in the upper house. So um, a, de- a decent majority there. They're also, so parliament will, was is expected to sit on October 13th. So we'll kind of, I think finalize those numbers over the next couple of weeks. And then they're also still working out the coalition details. Okay, we know who's going to be the prime minister, but who's going to be the finance minister? Which party is going to supply the finance minister, the interior minister? uh, And some of those discussions could go on for for quite some time. But it it seems that Maloney as the next prime minister is now pretty much certain.
0: So Maloney has made public statements kind of distancing herself from these uh, fascist ties uh looking at this situation uh the fact that you have so many italians that are interested in her message and the message of of others of these far-right groups what does this say about italy today uh well i'd like to talk about the wider ramifications for europe but just within italy the fact that there's this much support for uh for these kinds of
2: politics what does that tell you I think a good chunk of it is there's a support for no kind of politics. There's a subs- you know, turnout. Voter turnout was pretty low in this election. That's one of the the big takeaways that a lot of people are just getting fed up of. You know, For one set of people, the results were a lot of the chaos, the uncertainty in Italy and the back and forth and squabbling coalitions and repeated government is just to sit it out, to give up. This is not working uh, and to stay at home. And a lot on the left did that because they've been doing a lot of the most squabbling, and that played a key part in her victory. Another is then this shift in the right. So the right-wing parties got about the same percentage of the vote as they got in previous elections, but that gravitated to the Brothers of Italy, the most extreme of all the right-wing parties. There's a willingness within Italy to try parties that would have once been unthinkable. You know, This connection with Mussolini would used to have meant that most reasonable Italians would not have voted for them. Now things are getting so bad and other people that they voted for have failed so ba- so badly that they're willing to overlook that connection with Mussolini. It doesn't matter, we need somebody to fix this. We need somebody to get on top of migration where that is causing serious hardships and nobody will talk about it and anybody that does is accused of being racist, but we need somebody to deal with these genuine problems. Uh, if the only person that's really going to deal with that robustly is Mussolini is this descendant of Mussolini we will do that yeah uh, so you put both of those kind of sides together the left saying staying at home the right being willing to vote for an extreme party you know you're looking at just even a disenchantment with democracy as a whole for people wanting to you know, we need we need to try something fundamentally different maybe even a fundamentally different system the old norms have not worked that I think is one of the big takeaways from Italy at home
0: So uh, Georgia Maloney is uh, she has been euroskeptic uh, f- from what I understand she's kind of backed away from that somewhat but what does this say about Europe's uh, about Italy's relationship with the rest of Europe? How does the rest of Europe view what just happened in Italy?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. There's a pan European trend where lots of similar parties are getting support. We saw this in Sweden, what we we're talking about with uh, kind of almost Sweden's equivalent becoming the main right wing party there. I think there is a kind of liberal left wing consensus within Brussels that has kind of been aghast by this. Mm-hmm. But There are also a lot of people within Europe who are very happy about this. You know, Viktor Orban in Hungary, even Poland. You're starting to see some of the other right-wing figures within Europe uh, having a a strong basis of support that could fundamentally change the character of the European Union itself. And I think that would fundamentally change Maloney's view of the European Union. I think the, the European Union hierarchy and bureaucracy has been kind of captured by the center-left or the deep state, the consensus, this type of a thing, the globalists, you could say. uh, But you're in the position where potentially that could get captured back now by this more kind of traditionalist uh, politician like Maloney, who I don't think has a problem with Europe or the European Union as a concept. They have a problem with the people that currently run it and the way that it's being used to push things like mass migration mm. and a secular identity. That's what she doesn't like. That's what she'll fight, I think, rather. And, and there'll be some economic fights as well over you know, how much money do they get from Germany, that kind of thing. That has the potential to to, to really blow up. Um, but in terms of skepticism, I think it's more the way that Europe is currently being run that she has a problem with.
0: Well, that is interesting because we we have talked over the years about just this kind of battle for the future of Europe, where you have uh, this, say, more, um, I, I I guess uh, the liberal uh, globalist kind of perspective. You talked about the the left and the deep state that that uh, that run a lot of European bureaucracy, and you have this other uh, brand of. Of Europe that seems much more uh, nationalist, much stronger, and this I, I guess for Italy to have uh, put this coalition into power, uh, it it is you could say. Um, probably the, the European state that is at the closest to the heart of Europe as it is constituted, uh, more than, say, a Hungary or, uh, or some of these other nations that are a little more on the fringe of the European Union. This is right at the heart of it. And particularly when you look at, as Gerald Flurry brought out in his trumpet brief this week, the history and the, the link between Germany and Italy in World War II, the fact that Italy has taken the stand that it is, it really does bring uh, the historical associations uh, front and center and puts to question what does this mean for the future of Europe.
2: Absolutely. It could be the kind of the birth of, of a new Europe. One of the things Mr. Flurry focused on in that Trumpet brief and talked about in that Trumpet brief is the religious language that Georgia Maloney uh, mm. uses. You know, her, her motto is of uh, what it? God, homeland, family. And yeah, in some ways, okay, homeland, that's nationalistic, but that's exactly the same kind of language we get from Poland, get from Hungary, brings that into the heart of Europe now. And it's this that is a very direct connection to Mussolini. It's not just his name. It's not just a, a succession from Mussolini. Uh, it's not just that she personally has kind of praised him when she was younger or praised his supporters, which she has done when she was much older. It's not that her mayors have celebrated Mussolini's birthday and, uh, or key anniversaries for Mussolini's life. Those are all significant. But in her focus on religion, she is really focusing on what you could say was Mussolini's signature move, his signature policy of bringing the Catholic Church back into the heart of Italian government and gaining the support thereby from the catholic church for all of his policies this is absolutely fundamental to resurrecting the holy roman empire this is a core part you know that's what he called his empire he spoke about the holy roman empire this was an absolutely core part of his vision and maloney has a very similar vision and victor orban has a similar similar vision and all across europe you have a you have a similar vision and, and you can see the outlines now of a europe that uh looks to it that exalts religion and the Catholic church uh, and uh, you know, kind of sees themselves or sees Europe as a bulwark of Western civilization. And uh, it's a very different type of Europe to what we have now. And I think a lot of what we've seen this week is a lot of people in the United States think that's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can completely understand why. You know, i I think you have a ha- I would have a hard time looking at what Maloney said in this election and finding something that is genuinely say really extreme um that would be kind of you know r- really out there and and, and right wing or, or or super fascist apart from this connection with the religion and again people you know, okay great we're bringing you know, we've got a secular society that is destroying family and here she is saying well we need to bring God back into politics and we need to bring family back into politics Uh, and yeah there's a lot of that that sounds great but then the bible gives you this warning that you've got a religious system within europe that has risen repeatedly that has fallen repeatedly that adolf hitler and mussolini were an example of this they were leading this they both had close deals with the catholic church that this kind of bringing religion into their politics was a core part of their identity uh they even both of these even spoke a lot about family and, and had maybe some things that sounded very nice to say about it mm-hmm. but you know we all saw the fruits of that we all saw the results of world war ii mr flurry talked several times in his article about you know 60 million people died we need to learn from this so it's that history of well what happened last time the catholic church was given this central role in pro in, in politics and What does the Bible say? And what does the Bible say about it happening again? That makes what is happening in, in Italy, Chile. And that's the warning that we really need to pay attention to.
0: You need to read this article from Gerald Flurry, Fascism Reawakens in Italy. It was sent out as a trumpet brief earlier this week. It's up on the website And also our booklet, The Holy Roman Empire and Prophecy, as Mr. Palmer was just talking about, uh, to view what is happening in Italy today without looking at the history and without looking at Bible prophecy really does not give you anywhere near the full picture of what you need to see and recognize uh, uh, why this is so significant. So we will link to both of those resources on the show notes for the program today. We thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Palmer. Now to Russia, where Vladimir Putin is pursuing a policy of escalating the war in Ukraine. Many Russians are protesting. Some say Putin's presidency is in peril. To learn more about this, we'll go to Jeremiah Jacques.
3: Yeah, we spoke on the show last week about Putin's escalation of this war. He uh, passed legislation to mobilize an initial number of 300,000 Russians to go fight in the war, and the total number of new troops could very quickly reach more than a million. So this was a landmark decision, just a, a you know, a major escalation. And in the West, it seems like the main headline about this is the fact that many Russians are unhappy. With the move, social media has been flooded with videos of young Russian men fleeing the country. They're getting out of there by air, rail, and road. Around 200,000 men have fled just in the last week. So, just a stunning number. And uh, the lines of cars at the borders going into Georgia and Kazakhstan and Finland. And other Russian neighbors remain many miles long. And then there are also some gut wrenching videos of Russian men inflicting injuries on themselves, horrible injuries, just to get disqualified from the draft. There are also more and more protests, as you said, in Russia uh, against these mobili- mobilizations, even though it's such a high risk move to protest like that in Russia. So all of this is getting quite a bit of press in the US, and I think that it is significant, but where. Many Western onlookers go wrong is in thinking that this backlash against the mobilization and kind of a, the decrease in popular support for Putin and his war will bring his regime tumbling down. The truth is that Putin's grip on power is so tight and his autocracy is so powerful that even if he totally lost popular support, which is nowhere near the current reality, but even if that were the case, Putin has just a whole range of tools to maintain his control. So his ability to crack down on opposition remains really undiminished at this point. His forces have had no trouble so far confronting protesters, and they've arrested thousands of them just in the last week. Um, There are actually reports that Putin is giving a 50% pay increase to various police and paramilitary forces, including his personal guard, which you could call his praetorian guard. The, uh, The leading men in those groups are all already obscenely wealthy and now they're in store for major pay increases across the board so all of that makes all of these you know these forces just deeply loyal to the putin regime and all of that insulates him a great deal and it means that even though many russians are unhappy with this mobilization and with the war in general and even though hundreds of thousands are fleeing the country and many are protesting none of that is at a level that poses any actual threat to Putin or his designs on Ukraine. The, the mobilization is happening. It's underway. Some of the call-ups have already arrived in Ukraine. So the speed of that is remarkable. Mm. And uh, there are millions more that Putin can send in. So this is just another area, I think, where Western optimism tends to just overlook the power that Putin has built up during his 23 years in power. And it tends to underestimate his ability to get his way you know he's he's outlasted numerous predictions about his political fall and the facts show that he'll do it again and meanwhile as this
0: is going on uh Vladimir Putin is actually upping the ante um in terms of uh annexing Ukrainian territory to Russia
3: yes yeah at the same time that this mass mobilization is happening Putin is redrawing the map of Europe in a dramatic way the uh The scheme to stage these sham referendums was announced last week, and then the voting happened over the weekend and early this week. And it was all overseen by Russian troops armed with Kalashnikovs going door to door, making sure, first of all, that the people voted. And second, that they voted, yes, we want to become part of Russia. The the videos of this are laughable because it's just such a, you know, such a farce to make people vote literally at gunpoint. But Putin apparently really wanted to be able to hang some sort of a mask of legitimacy on his annexation of these lands. But the, uh, the regions are Donetsk, Luhansk, Kirson, and Zaporizhia. These are some of the same areas where Russian invaders have, you know, they've subjected the inhabitants to just unspeakable barbarity. But despite all that, surprisingly enough, more than 90% of these people voted in a way that, uh, that the armed soldiers wanted them to vote. <laughs> and as of today, this morning, these four regions are now part of Russia, at least according to Putin's claims. The rest of the world, of course, doesn't recognize this, but he says it's a done deal. And these regions make up about 42,000 square miles of land. So that's the size of the state of Tennessee. It's actually the largest annexation of land in Europe since World War II. And since these regions are now officially Russian oblasts, at least in Putin's eyes, he can pull out all the stops to, to defend them. The Kremlin stated it clearly this morning that any attack on Donetsk or any of these other places will be viewed as an attack on Russia itself. And so that could you know justify all kinds of escalation in the name of defending Russian soil, possibly including even the use of uh, tactical nuclear weapons. So the map of Europe has been redrawn in a dramatic way. This this really feels surreal to me to Mm -hmm. see this happening before our eyes, just like it happened with Crimea back in 2014. But this time it's with substantially more land and it's with populations that are far more deeply opposed Mm -hmm. to the move. And of course, that means that this time it's happening with a lot more bloodshed. Um, and really, given the way the world did nothing to Russia back in 2014, after Crimea, no one should be at all surprised that Putin is now doing it again. Uh, Mr. Jacques has written an article about
0: this that should appear on trumpet.com very soon. Uh, I just want to read one paragraph here. By going to the immense trouble of forcing hundreds of thousands of people to physically participate in a predetermined, utterly shambolic vote, just to be able to tell an elaborate lie that no one believes, Putin is carrying on a long-standing Russian tradition. He's walking in Stalin's footsteps. It's a it's an important point uh, because Gerald Flory has talked about this. He's been talking about the kind of leader that Vladimir Putin is, that he is kind of in that Stalinist mode. And a lot of people would look at that and say, well, that's overblown. And yet time is really vindicating that
3: analysis. That's exactly right. And I think what's uh, probably most interesting about Mr. Flurry's comparing of putin to stalin is that he first made that comparison back in 2004 mm. when putin had only been in office about four years and was not really seen as a dictator in the making he was not seen by hardly anyone i think as a threat to the global peace but even at that early date uh, mr Fleury said watch this man he is a dictator you know in the making at least who's, who's going to tread in stalin's footsteps his booklet, uh, The Prophesied
0: Prince of Russia, explains the role that he plays in prophecy and, and why those Stalinist uh, comparisons really are appropriate.
3: Yes. Yeah, that booklet was written in 2017. So by then there was a lot more evidence to, to vindicate that, that early comparison. And um, yeah, if anyone would like to understand you know, why that is a valid comparison, uh, I, would, I would highly recommend that booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Jacques. As those protests uh, over the uh, conscription have taken place in Russia, protests in Iran have also continued. And some say this could bring down the Iranian regime. For some analysis of this situation, we'll turn to Brent Noctegal.
4: Yeah, these are protests that have been going on for a couple of weeks, and they're still growing in in number of people taking to the streets. Uh, you probably heard these started after the death of a 22-year-old woman who was arrested by Iran's morality piece, uh, morality police. And uh, she. it's becoming known as the hijab revolution because the women are very upset at the stricter laws that are being pushed through Iran that uh, limit the way that the hijab needs to be worn or ensure that the hijab needs to be worn in certain ways. And then... When one woman is arrested for this and she's killed in custody, uh, this is a pretty serious um, uh, error, I would say, by the Iranian regime in in, in the way that they've tried to to, uh, first downplay it, first say they're going to investigate it, but people aren't being satisfied with the Iranian reaction. Uh, from the regime. And so they're taking to the streets in a way that we haven't seen um, for the, at least the last couple of years. And even going back to 2009, of course, there was a big protest a couple of years ago because of fuel prices that were just absolutely going through the roof and the everyday people couldn't afford to buy fuel to work. Um, and then 2009, it was against, there was a massive, uh, what's called the Green Revolution, um, because Ahmadinejad got about an extra 5 million votes in the rigged election and the people weren't happy with that. So that was a political protest. But this one comes out and strikes at the very heart of the Iranian Islamic order, uh, basically saying that the religious decrees have gone way too far and you shouldn't be putting women to death for for saying that we shouldn't uh, be wearing a hijab the way that you want us to.
0: The uh, comparison that you make with the uh, the Green Revolution is uh, probably uh, valid in a number of ways, but we at that time there were a lot of people saying, "Well, this really could bring the Iranian regime down." You had uh, the Obama administration that made some fairly uh, bold moves to. Uh, to distance itself from this popular uprising and that bolstered the power of the regime. Uh, Are we going to see a similar kind of dynamic play out this time around?
4: Yeah, well, back in 2009, we bring attention to this because this was the greatest chance the, the Iranian people had had to overthrow their government. Uh, in a in a way that the United States would would uh, historically see that as a wonderful opportunity. This this is a theocratic regime bent on getting the bomb, as we know, uh, and so let's let's lend a hand to the the Green Revolution. Of course, Obama came out and said it's not productive given the history of the U.S. Iranian relations to be seen as meddling. End quote. And so the United States didn't meddle. The United States didn't support. Uh, the protesters, and so we have this regime. Of course, that regime was already being reached out to by the Obama administration for a nuclear deal back then for a way of getting the Iranians back on the payroll, or at least getting the Iranians uh, access to international markets once again. So the big question is now what will the United States do? So far, done nothing. There was a couple of statements that have been put out that are slightly supportive of the protesters, um, but there's a really good back and forth that happened yesterday between um uh the ap reporter matt lee and ned price at the state department spokesman basically saying how can you on on one side you know be willing to be doing a deal with the iranians this regime that's forcefully and and brutally killing its people for wearing the for not wearing the hijab the way they should be already 80 people have died in these protests over the past couple of weeks how can you be seen to be looking for ways to give them money uh, and at the same time, you know, champion human rights. Do you want this regime to be given the money to continue what it's doing? So what we see is, I think, you know, the Iranian people can can kind of see through any type of verbal support because it's happening in the background of the nuclear deal negotiations in the nuclear deal. So that's one side of it. And the other side of it is, uh, regardless of United States influence, will these protests be effective? Will they be able to bring down the regime? And at first it did look like Raisi the, the president uh, who answers to the Ayatollah, the true powerhouse in Iran. Um, he's put out statements saying we're going to investigate the killing. we're going to make sure that whoever did it you know they they're um, brought to justice. Uh, that lasted a couple of days, that rhetoric. And since that time, basically the guns have come out. And interestingly enough, I think, oh, and even bordering on you know, just indicating some biblical prophecy here, is that a lot of people are being brought in from foreign states. Uh, there's been reports of Arabs crossing the border, proxies of Iran that fight for Iran in Iraq, that fight for Iran in Syria, uh, even Palestinian supporters being brought in um, to put down the protests to Forcefully put down the protest with bullets and this is the first time that it seems that the Iranians have gone that have brutalized protests of women Before they didn't do that. They tried to find a way of, of, of Getting them off the streets um, However, you've got proxies being used in Iran to preserve the the regime there now So what does a prophecy
0: indicate? Uh, the way that this is going to unfold
4: well, biblical prophecy, as we've spoken about on this program, does refer to a a Middle Eastern powerhouse that is governed by a foreign policy that's extremely push ex- pushy, extremely aggressive. And Mr. Flurry for 30 years have talked has talked about the Iranian regime being the king of of the South, the king of this alliance, and. The the way that this regime functions right now and the power that it has and its religious fervor that dominates its decision-making really does set it apart as fulfilling, being able to fulfill this prophecy. Uh, So we don't intend, we don't, uh, sorry, we don't believe this Iranian regime will fall because of these protests. In fact, I think it's going to consolidate the power of the IRGC. This is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Basically, Jeremiah was talking about the strengthening of of Putin's Praetorian Guard through this call-up and and what we're seeing in iran is exactly that the irgc is coming to the fore suppressing putting down this uh, the the popular protest the will of the people um And and even the fact that foreigners are being brought in, this is a king already that has a kingdom that might not be so popular amongst its own people, but it has the military power to maintain its rule there, and even to draw on assets throughout the Middle East to preserve its rule. That's somebody that's a nation that does, or, or that's a leadership that does not. represent a nation, it represents an idea, it represents an Islamic revolution that does, does disbelieves in nation states, in borders in the Middle East. And when we see Iran gathering resources, you could say that the regime is under threat to a certain extent. But the way that it brazenly brings out the bullets to put down and suppress political violence shows that it doesn't feel or shows that it'll be able to to continue um, through this current unrest. People can read the King of the South booklet by Mr. Gerald Flurry that talks about this prophecy of Iran fulfilling this role in end-time events.
0: All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Noctigal. Now to America, where Hurricane Ian made landfall in Florida on Wednesday for a look at
1: what happened. We'll go to Andrew Miller. Yeah, I believe are still about two and a half million people without power in Florida as the Biden administration has declared a state of emergency and is starting to send uh, relief packages to the area. As you said, Cor- Hurricane Ian made landfall on Thursday as a Category 4 storm, 150 mile per hour winds, uh, ripping apart trees, uh, shredding homes, tearing down power lines. Uh, big surges of water, seven foot high at Fort Myers, 12 foot high at, at Naples. Uh, you can see some pretty shocking video footage of, uh, of just like the, the tide ripping through people's living rooms. And uh, this is the fourth. It tied for the fourth biggest hurricane in recorded Florida history. Uh, I forget the one it tied with now, but um, 150 mile hour winds. So Hurricane Michael back in 2018 was a little bigger. Uh, hurricane Andrew back in 1992 was uh, quite a bit bigger, and then of course the great granddaddy of them all, the Labor Day hurricane back in 1935, still holds the record. But uh, but definitely a, a sizable storm that took. Took a number of people off guard. This summer was actually the most peaceful summer in the North Atlantic since World War II. Uh, there were no named hurricanes till just a little bit ago. So pretty late in the year. I mean, a lot of people were were gearing up for a very peaceful hurricane season. And it may still be um, quite a bit more peaceful than it was uh, in 2020, which was pretty bad for for hurricanes in that area. But uh, it seems like... It, this hurricane season, it, it got a late start and it, it may not have as many as normal, but it seems like it made up for it a little bit by having, like I said, one of, the, one of the bigger ones that's hit Florida in, in a long time.
0: So this is interesting. You're, you're talking about the uh, hurricane activity this past year being below average uh, and significantly below average. Uh, I just find it interesting that as this has had, this is obviously very serious storm. And immediately when, when something like this happens, all of the, uh, analysts come out in force to, uh, to say that this is evidence of, of climate change, uh, but here we've got some conflicting evidence.
1: Oh yeah, you can definitely see a political agenda, and I think there are more people waking up to the fact that it's a political agenda. Because I remember some like ten years ago, you'd see news headlines saying that like increasing hurricanes prove climate change, uh, and then the hurricanes stopped increasing. So then they came back. Well, they said like decreasing hurricanes. Prove climate change, or or I saw a headline one time that said like, well, hurricanes are decreasing, but they're getting more intense, and that proves climate change. Uh, this time around, it was actually I think it was Don Lennon on CNN. He was uh, interviewing the uh, one of the scientists at the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Organization, uh, the, the NOAA organization, if I if I got that right, uh, and he uh, he brought up the climate change angle in regarding to hurricane Ian and this scientist from the the federal government shut him down like on air right away saying he's like no he's like there's there's no no link between hurricane Ian and climate change uh and so you you see that even the government officials are kind of trying to step away from that but the but the CNN and the media they're still trying to uh hype that up that like well climate change causes hurricanes even if you um even though, like I said, hurricane activity this year is about fifty percent below normal, uh, and then if you were to graph, if you were to graph every hurricane in the North Atlantic every year from nineteen hundred to today, which I've done before, uh, I think the the average around nineteen hundred was about four a year. Uh, the average now is about seven a year. So it's trending upward a little bit, but then if you extend that graph back to like 1850, it flattens right out. And so you see some years it goes up, some years it goes down, but there's no long-term trend uh, of increasing hurricanes. And there's definitely no long-term trend that got carbon dioxide emissions or, or cow flatulence or uh, SUVs have anything to do with it or the other things that they they keep telling us. Well, we do have a, an article up on the website today,
0: um, See God in the Storm by Josue Michels, that uh, just talks about uh, the other dimension to this that tends to be ignored as people are uh, continually beating that door of, of climate change whenever something like this happens. Uh, but maybe you can just uh, explain... Uh, that that point that uh, Josue makes.
1: Right, because you look in the, these uh, into the, some of the prophecies that the article gets into, and, and especially some of the other scriptures the article gets into, is there are specific prophecies about God sending drought on the nations of end-time Israel if they rebel against him. Uh, There's also specific prophecies about uh, an increase in earthquakes just before Jesus Christ returns. There's no specific prophecies saying that hurricanes are going to go up or down uh, in the end time. So that number's more or less um, irrelevant from a prophetic standpoint. But... There's plenty of uh, verses throughout the Bible that explains like why natural disasters. Period. It's like when God created the earth and God created mankind. Why did He uh, create things like this to happen? And and it is to uh, get people to examine their life and ask some hard questions and kind of draw them back closer uh, to God. The um, the example. Uh, Josiah like Mitchell's uses that article as the one where Christ is talking to uh, this group of Jews, where a tower in Siloam fell on a bunch of people, and and they they had wondered back then. It's was like, what well, were those people like the worst sinners in Israel that God made this tower fall on them? And and Christ kind of shot down that idea, saying it's like, no, it's like they weren't necessarily any worse sinners than anyone else. But unless you repent, you'll always perish, or in other words, like life is life is fragile uh, everyone needs to contemplate uh, the unexpected um Things that could end a life or, or cause a huge financial uh, catastrophe uh, and make sure you're you're right with God at all times. And that is uh, something that our booklet, Why Natural Disasters, just brings out that uh, God does uh, allow these type of things to happen, even sends these type of hurricanes uh, to remind people uh, to look to him. Uh, It's not necessarily that you can graph that like when hurricane during 2020, when hurricanes went up, that the Floridans were more sinful that year than they were this year when they've gone down a little bit. Uh, But all the hurricanes from 2020 and this year and before uh, are designed to get people to examine their lives uh, and make sure uh, they're right with God. Why Natural Disasters is the name of that
0: booklet. There's a lot packed into that booklet that uh, uh, when these kind of events happen, it's wonderful to, to have the perspective that the Bible alone provides to, uh, to understand why God allows these things to happen. Uh, We do encourage you to uh, check that out. It's there at thetrumpet.com. We'll link to it in the show notes for today's program. Thank you very much, Mr. Miller. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Coming up, the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline, financial crisis in the United Kingdom, a joint naval patrol between Russia and China, Iran buying land in Venezuela, and a plea for America to take practical steps to alleviate the world energy crisis. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Another big story out of Europe, the apparent sabotage of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. Many say Russia did it. Russia says someone else did it. For this, we'll go back to Richard Palmer.
2: Yeah, it's a a massive event. It's hard to say too much about it until we know who did it. And... And it's kind of a tough one it's hard to see russia, why russia would sabotage their own pipeline it's hard to see america taking such a big risk of blowing up a pipeline within european kind of territory but it happened so someone did it <laughs> uh so i think we'll have to wait and see it will take some time before the gas comes you know for the gas to release from the explosion before people can get down and investigate and have a look and try and find out exactly what what went on there. I think one of the main takeaways, though, is just watch how Europe responds in terms of this exposes a key vulnerability of of Europe. This exposes the fact that um, you've got this... that Europe is completely dependent on all these kind of pipelines, on... undersea internet connections and electricity interconnections there's a lot of infrastructure down there and they couldn't do a thing to protect themselves in fact they're still not even sure who did it uh and so this really does show the need for europe to step up militarily in exactly the way we've seen germany talking a lot about over the last few weeks and months mm. uh and so i think uh, it also show, it also kind of brings more fina- uh, economic uncertainty into europe you know, they're very dependent on all of these things that could be cut off at any minute. So uh, by introducing that uncertainty into Europe, I think we can expect political change. We can expect military change. And that's exactly you know, this kind of military superpower is what we have been prophesying for a long time based on the Bible, based on these prophecies of a, of a military superpower. And that's in uh, we have a trends article on that, uh, on uh, you know, why the Trumpet watches Europe's push towards a unified military.
0: Well, we will see uh, what more information emerges uh, about uh, what happened there, who was behind it, uh, and the ramifications of that. While we have you here, Mr. Palmer, I'd like to uh, talk about another story, the financial crisis hitting the UK this week. Uh, Tell us what what happened.
2: Yeah, we had the pound fall to its lowest level against the dollar and something like 230 years we had the bank of england step forward and have to announce a bailout to prevent pension funds from going bust it was a, a massive hiccup and i think people all around the world are still looking at this watching you know saying is is is, is britain going to have a major financial meltdown is they go is this going to trigger a major global financial meltdown and all this came after the budget that we talked about on the last show. And to me, what I think the main takeaway is something really interesting and and has a massive relevance for the United States, where on this show last week, I talked about how, well, Britain had quote unquote, solved its um, high energy price problem by putting on massive debt that we would probably make make it through the winter. But sooner or later, that debt is going to become due and we're heading for a massive financial crash. I think the hiccup this week showed us you know, that financial crash is coming sooner rather than later. We're reaching, you know, we've kind of, we've gotten used to this idea that, oh, we can just borrow unlimited amounts of money and throw it at all of our problems. And the fact that uh, there was this this bit of a wobble this week shows that we're reaching the end of that and that governments can't just borrow unlimited amounts of cash anymore and, and get away with it. Markets are starting to get concerned about heavy, heavy debts. Uh, and uh you know there were other things that went on to this in britain i think there was an ideological element where the trust government is pursuing a plan that the that the current economic consensus fundamentally disagrees with and so uh that was part of the the reason why there was that reaction there were some big tax cuts cutting taxes from um, 45% down to 40% and again that some of that was unexpected and that Kind of led the impression, or people started to worry about inflation and that interest rates would have to go higher, and then could that crash the economy? Uh, But fundamentally, you know, we can't just print our way out of problems anymore. We're reaching that was always kicking the can down the road. This is a sign all around the world that we're running out of road. A great item to read as we reach the end of that road is an article from the 2007 Trumpet Print uh, Magazine: "Stormproof Your Financial House." It has just a lot of very practical biblical principles on uh, preparing for economic collapse and just uh, showing how you can apply scriptures from the Bible to your your finances, uh, because we know that, that some economic turmoil is going to play a major role in how Bible prophecy uh, plays plays out from here on out.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for that. Good job doing uh, double duty there. More evidence uh, of the strengthening of ties between Russia and China this week with a provocative joint naval patrol. For this, we'll go back to Jeremiah Jacques.
3: Yeah, there's been just a great deal of talk over the last few weeks that uh, Chinese Secretary General Xi Jinping is unhappy with Vladimir Putin's war, and that he is sort of preparing to part ways with Putin over it. Several high-profile analysts have said that this means that the so-called no-limits partnership... Between Russia and China, will soon be coming to an end. Um, you you even see some Westerners saying, kind of, you know, breathlessly that conditions are now actually in place for China to invade Russia and take some land back, since you know the Russian military is so focused on Ukraine right now, leaving Russia's east really unguarded. So just a lot of euphoria and those kinds of predictions from Westerners, and we do know that China is as surprised as the rest of the world that the war has taken so long and that it has presented so much difficulty to Russia. Um, We know that Xi Jinping has raised some questions about it to Putin, but none of this should be seen as a sign that Russia and China are breaking up. The big geopolitical factors that bind them remain in place. You know, they they still both need security along their thousands of miles of border. They both still have a foreign policy that's built on the claim that America and its allies pose an existential threat to their nations. They both still meet major economic needs for the other, uh, particularly with their energy partnership. And then Putin and Xi also have Increasing common ground about prioritizing regime security. That's actually the highest priority for both of these men. There was was an insightful analysis about this in the South China Morning Post yesterday. And it talks a lot about the uh, geopolitical goals that Russia and China have in common. And then it says... Under Xi and Putin, the normative dimension has also been significant. Both view regime security as their main priority and are determined to shape the international order in such a way that authoritarian states can be rule makers. End quote. So, you know, these men have almost an intrinsic disdain for democracy. In many ways, just because it is democracy. That's why Taiwan, the very existence of Taiwan, is such an affront to Xi Jinping and why Ukraine is such an affront to Putin. They want a new world order where the authoritarians rule. And, and you know, that's just one factor, welding these two nations together. So despite all of that optimism in the West, we should not expect their partnership to end anytime soon. And as you said, this week, we got some really stark evidence of this enduring partnership. Um, At the same time that people were sounding the death knell for the Russia-China partnership, a group of warships from Russia and China conducted a deeply provocative patrol just off the coast of the U.S. state of Alaska. This was on Monday that the news of it broke, and it was four Russian warships and three Chinese warships, including a guided missile cruiser so some you know some major firepower there and these ships from the two different navies were sailing in single formation when the US Coast Guard spotted them so it looked like one navy and that i think just speaks to a very high level of military coordination between russia and china they were technically operating in accordance with international rules but they were just about as close as you could get to us waters without triggering a major response so i think this was definitely intended to provoke And it shows just how robust the Russia-China partnership remains. Where it counts, they are still in lockstep, they're in tandem, and and the synergy of that partnership makes them a powerful force.
0: Yeah, that quote that you read from the uh, uh, South China Morning Post really does uh, put it well that you have these two uh, authoritarian leaders who they really are interested in reshaping the world order, taking it away from an American led order. And so there's a whole lot of what we would consider uh, bad behavior uh, by Putin that she is absolutely willing to, to put up with for the sake of those longer term goals that he's
3: pursuing. That's right. Yeah. Both of these men have spent, you know, more than a decade in Xi Jinping's case, more than two decades in Putin's case, building this foreign policy that's really predicated on the claim that the United States and our allies pose a threat to their nations. And so everything they do is designed to counter that, which means to reduce the role of America and other democracies around the world. And it makes them just incredibly provocative. And with
0: the, the kind of tools that they have at their disposal to be able to wield power when they stand together like this. And they also have quite considerable support from several other nations. And their, uh, China in particular has made uh, tremendous strides in even increasing uh, trade relationships, economic ties with nations around the world, uh, it's a formidable
3: force. You're looking at uh, what the Bible describes as these kings of the East. That's true. It's definitely not just Russia and China. We increasingly see India and, and you know, a dozen other smaller Asian nations um, really leaning into this Russia-China axis and leaning away from the American order. And as you said, this is all very significant in terms of Bible prophecy. The book of Revelation tells us that a multinational Asian axis will emerge in the modern era and that it'll have 200 million men in its forces. So just, you know, an an astonishing number of uh, troops there. But if you're talking about a nation like China with its 1.3, 1.4 billion being one of the primary countries, and then all those other nations being a part of that as well, then it's not at all an unrealistic figure. And uh, there are also passages in the book of Ezekiel showing that Russia will be at the head of this Asian power block with China as its uh, primary partner. That's in chapters 38 and 39. So you can really see these ancient prophecies coming to life with this enduring partnership and their joint patrols and other current trends in Asia.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for bringing that to us, Mr. Jacques. Iran is buying up millions of acres of land in Venezuela. They say it's just to grow food. Others insist this poses a serious threat to the United States. For this, we'll go back to Brent Noctegal.
4: Yeah, this is a a, a stunning uh, announcement that was put out uh, just a a couple of weeks ago regarding Iran's purchase of a massive amount, 2.5 million acres of land of venezuelan farmland this was a deal that was was done back in june um when a number of deals were worked out between iran and maduro the the leader of venezuela but it only was leaked to the press a couple of weeks ago and it speaks to this massively strong relationship that's developing between Iran and Venezuela. We've talked about this uh, every now and then over the past maybe five years uh, on thetrumpet.com, alerting our readers that Iran is trying to get a foothold in in the backyard of the United States and right now, the the, the oil for food, um, the oil for uh, t- terrorist. Well, let's say that the 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 help with with Venezuela's oil production uh, to produce uh, petrol. That's what Venezuela needs. They have oil, uh, but they need the the guys to help them produce the the usable form petroleum. And Iran needs money. And Iran needs. Uh, access to grow food. So they're, they're probably going to grow some staples on this, corn and other such things. But Iran is also trying to get into, get into the backyard of the United States. And so others are wondering, Gladstone Institute today put out, a, or, or last week put out a piece saying that they're probably going to use this to train their foot soldiers, which we know have been transported. IRGC members actually make up part of the Maduro government. We know this. Uh, and this is a worrying sign for the United States, especially as we see um apprehensions of people on the FBI's terror watch list grow uh, just exponentially. This past year, 70 people, less than a year, 70 people this fiscal year have been arrested by the FBI on the FBI terror watch list. Uh, last, the year before, it was just 15. The year before that, it was three. Something's going on with terrorists getting to the southern border of the United States, and we have talked about for years Iran using Venezuela and this relationship as a way of getting them there.
0: Well, thank you very much, Mr. Noctegall. We do have an article that uh, we'll link to in the show notes that uh, he wrote uh, some years back. Iran is establishing a base of operations in Venezuela. Gives more information about its activities there. As the world suffers energy shortages, the Biden administration is prioritizing policies that use this as an opportunity to force people off fossil fuels. Some are pleading with his government to change direction. For this, we'll turn to Andrew Miller.
1: Yeah, oil and gas prices in the United States are rising to very inconvenient levels, while oil and gas prices in Europe rise to catastrophic levels. And so now we have 18 retired U.S. military leaders led by former General James Marks urging the Biden administration ...to support U.S. energy production. These 18 military officials uh, penned a letter that was uh, released publicly to on September 28th. It's to President Biden, uh, beginning, "...in support of United States national security. We are writing to encourage you and your administration to use all the powers at your disposal to increase the development of energy resources from the United States and North America, including natural gas. Now, so far, these pleas seem to have fallen on deaf ears since Biden's taken office. He's only leased out 126,000 new acres of drilling projects. That's actually fewer new acres, far fewer new acres, than any president since Harry Truman, who didn't lease out very much because... Uh, We were still figuring out drilling technology, and the federal government didn't even own those offshore reserves yet. So definitely, this is the biggest ideologically uh, driven clampdown on new oil drilling in order to try to force Americans off fossil fuels. The plan seems to be working, but it could have uh, catastrophic effects both to the United States standard of living and the security of western europe as they rely more and more on russia and so we'll put in the show notes the uh, the chapter from uh, our editor-in-chief's new book uh, america under attack about this is not incompetence showing that the the these high gas prices in both america and europe are a deliberate attempt by the biden administration to force both energy reform and geopolitical change All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Miller. I'm Joel Hilliker. That's
0: it for today's Trumpet Hour. Email us your thoughts on the program to letters at Trumpet.com. Thanks to our panel, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegall. Thanks to Parker Campbell for engineering and production. I'll leave you with the words of Abraham Lincoln, we should be too big to take offense and too noble to give it. Thanks for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to trumpet hour on trumpet radio 101.3 kpcg and online at kpcg.fm understand your world